All right, well, good morning, everybody. Just a few announcements for anybody visiting. Uh, we have a sign-up sheet in the back of the church. Please uh, fill that out and uh, let us know your phone number. Uh, we have, in the backs of some of the chairs, we have um, communication cards. You can fill one of those out and drop them in the offering boxes, too. Um, if you would do that, that'd be great. Let's see. We have, oh, okay, so if you think you should have received your giving statement but have not, it says please contact the church office. So let Rachel know, and we'll see if we can't get that to you. Uh, stick around. After today, we have the members meeting. Um, there's a couple things we need to vote on, and then we're going to do kind of an update on the parsonage renovation and the plan moving forward on that. So be sure and stick around for that. Titus 2 Women is holding a women's event on February 4th from 3 to 5. So it says child care will be available. And on February 11th, there will be a fellowship lunch. And do we know anything more on what that is, what we're bringing? Or there will be a clipboard coming around. So uh, let's see. I think that's about it. Be sure to look through the uh, bulletin for any other announcements. Um, oh, next week, be sure to remember that the Hope Dealers Q&A will be after church. Uh, so make sure and bring your questions and comments for uh, that ministry. And we'll have a... We'll have a discussion with the Hope Dealers. And then we also have a birthday today. Um, he, I, don't, I, I won't reveal the age, but uh, Ozzy is, um, Ozzy's, no, I won't say the age. You know what, Ozzy's, <laughs> Ozzy's birthday is today. So tell you what, go ahead and let's, let's, let's sing happy birthday to Ozzy here. So, Oh, sorry. And Janice's birthday was yesterday. Janice? This is, this is from Stacy. so, all right, let's sing happy birthday and happy belated birthday to Janice. When I first started coming to church here, they made you come up and stand in front of everybody when they say <laughs> happy birthday, so we're getting more lax, so that's probably a good thing. All right, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll do our monthly memory verse. verses. Psalm 118, 22, and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, 22, and 23. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, just a, a chance to worship you, uh, to gather together to worship you, Lord. We, we pray that our worship wouldn't just be on a Sunday morning, Lord, that we would just uh, worship you always. We pray for uh, Shane today as he brings a message. We also pray for uh, just this community. We pray for our, our missions, our, our missionaries that we, that we support, Lord. We just pray that you would uh, bless their... their uh, uh, their mission, Lord. We pray that you would you would just uh, help them reach the lost. We we pray that uh, we could do the same here, Lord. You've given us that. Uh, you commissioned us all. We pray that we would be um, on fire for for the lost to share your gospel, Lord. We love you, and we just lift this time to you through uh, song and praise. In your name, we pray. Amen. Oh, I love praising the Lord with the saints. Amen. Ah, oh, I loved. I heard a lot of voices over here, but I love the kids. You hear the kids. 
Oh, it's so awesome. So, so awesome to praise with each other as a church, recognizing the goodness and the glory of God. Let me bring our slides up. If you're new here, my name is Shane, and I'm, uh, I have the privilege of serving as pastor here at the church. And it looks like I'm going to be having a few slide issues here. Let's try this. I'm going to reconnect here, guys, just a second. In the meantime, I got a question for you. How much does a soul weigh? Does anybody know? How much does a soul weigh? Any thoughts? Nothing? 0.4 pounds, I hear. There we go. Okay. So, funny enough, there was a scientist who uh, many years ago decided that he wanted to measure and see what was the weight of a soul. And so he um, put together a research study where he would be at the deathbed of several folks who knew that they were passing away, and he weighed them. And at the end of this study, this, this man's name was Duncan McDougall, and at the end of this study, he noticed a trend that there was 21 grams missing from the body every time somebody, right at the moment of their passing, 21 grams missing. Now, there's been a lot of, since then, you know, question about his research and uh, how he did it and what he did, but if you know, there's even movies now that are made with the, with the title 21 Grams, 21 Grams. And so it's become kind of an urban legend, if you will, that the soul weighs 21 grams. And there's a real fascination with that, isn't there? It's kind of interesting. How many of you seen in the last several years, you see books on people who have maybe died and gone to heaven or died and gone to hell and they come back and they write a book or they have kids that, that put together this book. In fact, there's been movies. There's a fascination with what on earth happens to us when we die. What happens to us when we die? And every once in a while, you get a unique view. You get It's like Jesus peels open the secrets of life and death itself, and he gives you an inside scoop into the truth of what it looks like for us to die and what happens after our death. Today, as we've been in our series in Mark, we're in Mark chapter 12. And we know that Jesus has gone to war. He's, he's in what we call the Passion Week. And we've been researching, or the last several passages have all existed in one day. This has been one day of Jesus' ministry. This is still what we call Testy Tuesday. Testy Tuesday before the resurrection because of all of these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious people coming and testing Jesus. And we know that Jesus is coming to war in Jerusalem and for all of creation and for all people. He's warring against what? Sin, Satan, and death. Sin, Satan, and death. And today, he is targeting death, is in his scope. He is going to poke at death and give us an inside scoop into his victory over death on our behalf. And this is cool, and it all comes out of a conversation with some Pharisees. He's going to take a pot shot at death. That was my favorite phrase for today. He's going to take a pot shot at death. 
See, Christians, we're going to have a firsthand report from the one in charge. This is the one who, the only one in history who was died, was buried, and came back to life in and of his own power. Jesus is going to give us the inside scoop to what happens when we die. And let's, without further ado, let's find out what living after life looks like by looking at, at Mark 12, 18. Let's jump right into the passage. Mark 12, 18 says, And Sadducees came to him. I'm just going to pause here, and I want to underline Sadducees. Uh, it was always, and Dakota did a fantastic job last week, didn't he? Can we just give him a, an applause? He did a great job explaining the different political agendas that were occurring at this time, and one of those political agendas was the Sadducees. My favorite way to remember what the Sadducees were all about is to remember that they were really sad, you see. And we're going to go into why, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in afterlife. And so they were very sad, you see. That's how I remember it. So the Sadducees came to him, and they, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So essentially, the Sadducees are laying out this hypothetical, this what-if situation. Okay, if there's a resurrection, Jesus... What if this happens? And Jesus' response to their hypothetical is amazing. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Boy, that's a way to start a strong argument with people, right? Is this not the reason that you are wrong? <laughs> Anybody have a conversation that just kind of outs right at the beginning? You are wrong. Let me tell you why. But Jesus, man, right, Jesus was intense sometimes in his conversations. So the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So he just pressed at two very insecure spots, and we're going to unpack that. The Sadducees just got poked in an insecure spot. Do you have any insecurities? Anybody ever been poked in those insecurities? right? It raises your, we'll call them your hackles, your hackles. So Jesus pokes at the insecurities of the Sadducees in verse 25 then, for when they rise from the dead, so Jesus already confirms for when, not if, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the, the living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, wow. So let's first talk in this passage. Jesus is addressing the Sadducees. And as we talk about the Sadducees, it's really important to understand what is their worldview. They're, of course, referring to a passage in Deuteronomy 25.5, where Moses gives this rule, this law for Israel that was supposed to preserve the nations of Israel and their lineages so that they could walk and maintain and, and have this kingdom on earth that would represent 
God to all of mankind. And so this was a rule, a law of the Old Testament that applied to Israel, so it is still in the minds of the Jews here having this conversation still applied. And so they're thinking in terms of lineage. And Sadducees, they were very big on lineages because they came from very wealthy, prominent families. This was very big and important prospect to them because they themselves came from very wealthy, prominent families. They had wealth. They had power. In that time, the Sadducees were less of, they were different than the Pharisees, if you remember from what Dakota explained. Pharisees were educated men who were trying to return people. They opened synagogues. Sadducees were kind of in power, and they were very more politically inclined, more politically minded than even religious minded, if you will. Okay, so the Sadducees were even more sad, you see. And they were all about lineage because it boosted their own power. And we know a little bit more about the right, about Sadducees, extra biblical writings of a a guy named Josephus. Uh, He wrote a couple, you know, he was born slightly after the Uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he recorded some of the things that he noticed about the Sadducees, that they were basically along the lines of what we would call a deist. You've heard me explain this before. A deist is somebody who believes God exists, and that he created everything, and he gave it such perfect order, and now he is not involved in it at all. He's completely taken his hands off of creation and is not intimately involved. That's called a deist a deist. Our our country really was founded by many men who considered themselves deists. Can you think of a few? Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. These men were deists. They believed that, that God wound the world like a clock and then took his hands off of it and now lets all of the rules play out. And so they were very much more like deists, believed, created the world, and took his hands off the day-to-day. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They lived for today. These were the elites. When we think about elites within the Jewish world and within the area, they were wealthy, prominent families. And because of power, this is interesting, Pharisees tended to be on the same page with each other as religious leaders, but the Sadducees were much like our politicians today. Even if you're in the same party, you're not for one another. Can I get an amen? And so the Sadducees were known for fighting and arguing and infighting with each other. Is that similar, by the way, to some of the views of today? Do you think the Sadducees would represent some of the views that people have today? When I talk to people, I think even within the church, many within the church maybe don't know it, wouldn't describe themselves as a deist, but don't believe that God intimately is involved in their everyday-to-day life. I think even Christians struggle with that perspective, don't we? You know how you know? Did you talk to God every single day, intimately discussing with him what you're doing? And it's called praying without ceasing. Have you gone a day without praying? Then maybe you struggle with that little bit of, you know, I'm just going to live my life and I don't really know if God is involved or not. That would be more of a deist kind of perspective on the, on the world. And that, that's similarly close to what the Sadducees thought. They thought it's up to us. It's up to us, and so their judgments tended to be very harsh. Their judgments tended to be very harsh because they had to protect today. Anybody ever find that in order to protect what you've got going on in your life, you tend to be really harsh with others? I see my, my kids sometimes play this out, right? They'll build Legos, 
And as soon as little brother gets anywhere near those Legos, they're barking at him. Like, you breathed in the direction of my Legos. And they get really harsh. They get really harsh. Well, the Sadducees are like that, so they had really harsh judgments on others because they wanted to protect their whole world because in their mind, the only thing that mattered was right now, right here. Boy, that kind of sounds like a mantra that many of us in, in the world today struggle with. That we should live today. God is not intimately involved in our life. So, so that's the perspective of the Sadducees. They come up with this hypothetical situation to try to trick Jesus. They want Jesus to come to the idea that Moses' law existed because now is the only time that really matters. And they want Jesus to come out and say, you know, that law existed to preserve the lineage of Jerusalem in the now because we know that the now is all that really matters. What's to come doesn't really matter. We don't believe in an afterlife. And so they were deceived. And there were two reasons they were deceived, and Jesus pokes at these. They were deceived, number one, because they did not know the Scriptures. They did not know the Scriptures. Now, this is a tender spot because if you look over at the other camp, which were the Pharisees, the Pharisees knew their Bibles very, very, very well. The Sadducees were like, meh, we'll pick and choose kind of what we like and what we don't like. Does that sound familiar? We'll kind of we'll go with what benefits us and, and we'll kind of rule out the rest. They only ascribed to a certain number of books within the, the Torah and so they didn't even really, they weren't people that were renowned for knowing their scriptures. Now, I can't tell you how often I see that today in the church. Self-described Christians who, who attend church day in and day out, and when you give them a truth uh, and you say, did you know this was in God's word? It's like shatters their whole existence because they hadn't heard it before. Many, when I ask, have you read, you, maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years, and I'll ask many, have you read all of the Bible? And very rarely do I get all the hands raised in the room that would say that they have read the Bible, even though majority of us would claim to be Christian, right? And so Jesus is poking at something, an insecurity within the Sadducees that they really could have done something about, but they didn't. That's us sometimes, isn't it? That's us sometimes, isn't it? We don't know the scriptures. I want you to I want to show you the danger that this is, just not just for the Sadducees at the time, but for us today, there is a danger if we don't intimately approach the scriptures and try to understand them and try to know them. You don't have to be smart to understand the scriptures. I'm here to tell you, if I can understand them, I'm not very smart. You can too. With a little bit of effort, with some effort with some effort. They didn't know the scriptures, but there's a danger. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. That's in Hosea towards Israel. This is a dangerous territory for us when we become a group of Christians that don't know what God has said. It becomes very dangerous when we have the same, lie, same potential that the Sadducees did and do. And Isaiah 5.13 says, Therefore my people go into exile. If you remember the time of exile in the Old Testament, they go into exile for lack of knowledge. 
Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. This is Isaiah 5.13. So this idea of lack of knowledge has already played itself out in Israel's history. And now it's playing out again in how the Sadducees are responding to the Messiah and their view of the resurrection. So they didn't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And I think this is important that he puts both of those together because the Pharisees had knowledge of the Scriptures, didn't they? They didn't have knowledge of the power of God. So being really smart and knowing the Bible better than other people isn't necessarily a guarantee either. It certainly helps when we, we encourage each other to reach out to God's Word, but there's a sense that we have to be people who experience the power of God. Why is this important that Jesus is saying there's a bigger picture here? It's not just the here and now. It's not just this life that you live. It's not just you only live once, but it's the sense that the... There is a bigger picture. There is a bigger story playing out, and your life is just a tiny little portion of what eternity is going to be for us. And so with that, uh, you think about he's trying to get the Sadducees to see this bigger picture. For us today, we need to see that there's a bigger picture, the power of God working throughout all of history. COVID. You guys remember COVID? Some of you shudder. We're still experiencing some of the consequences, but it came and went, didn't it? We're here. There aren't any masks on in the, in the congregation right now. We're not having arguments and bitter, uh, bitter conversations. That came and went, didn't it? These big things. At that time, how many of you felt more stressed in your life than you've ever felt ever? But it came and went, didn't it? It came and went. So the power of God is about a bigger picture than just these little things occurring, just our little little uh, kingdoms that we're building. See the history of context of all of history, all existence, all time is the the domain that Jesus and that God are working. This history, this story is so much bigger than just our lives, but we get so fixated. See, that's where context is everything. How many of you have ever gone on Google Maps and you've done the, the pinch thing where you find something like you're going to go to your house and you zoom in really close to your house? You ever done that? And then you start to pinch out and then it does it too quick and you totally lose where your house was. And you're like, where did it go? And you pinch out again, and it's like all of a sudden you have the whole globe, and you're like, wait, where did my house go? Because it paled in comparison to the greater context of what was going on. And here Jesus is trying to paint that picture for the Sadducees. There's more going on, and if you knew the power of God and the scale at which he is working, you wouldn't be so fixated on keeping your little world safe. And so they were deceived because they didn't know the Scriptures or the power of God. We too can be deceived that this is it, that there's nothing to come. The great tool of the devil is to distract you and distract me from thinking about death. Have you ever noticed that? It seems like there's more entertainment today than there's ever been in history. And, and the other thing that comes along with that is, you ever notice how you always constantly have one thing to another thing and another thing to go to, so you never have to sit and reflect. And you have to never have to sit and contemplate your existence. When's the last time you sat down and thought about the fact that 100% of us are going to die someday? Every person in here is going to die someday. Whether we like that, whether we recognize that or not, 100% of us. And so we have to grapple with this idea of death. What do we do with death? And so we cannot get so distracted on the things of now that we forget that we all are going to live forever according to scriptures. And where we live 
forever, and what we do forever is dependent on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. So let's get focused. Let's get focused. So Jesus unveils these afterlife revelations, I'm calling them, afterlife revelations. And uh, let's see what he unpacks in these truths in these passages. Number one, he immediately confirms that the resurrection exists, that the resurrection exists. I think it's really interesting that Jesus goes with the resurrection versus using the terminology of heaven. Do you guys know the two differences between those things? The resurrection means raised to life. That means bodily resurrection. We're going to talk about this, but Paul talks about bodily resurrection, that we will come to life and we will be physical beings again one day in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the promise of Scripture. Now, many of us, when we think about the afterlife, how many of you instantly go to, well, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven? Well, the term heaven itself actually just means the throne room of God. Literally translated, it means the throne room of God. We might be in heaven for a time, but when Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and the earth, who comes with him? The believers, the brothers and sisters. We don't stay in heaven forever. We come back to the glorified earth and new heavens that Jesus has made. Isn't that cool? You ever thought beyond heaven? Ooh. I think that's why there's that Bible passage, Colossians 3, 2, that says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. So resurrection does exist, that we will one day be raised back to life. Resurrection and not heaven. And it defeats this idea of, and the young kids are calling it these days, YOLO. You ever heard the term YOLO? You only live once. You only live once. And they'll say YOLO when they're trying to justify having a lot of fun that they probably shouldn't have, and it's going to cost them later, right? They'll say, YOLO, you only live once. I should take this risk because now is the only thing that matters. I I used to uh, debate with our college and our youth ministry that instead of YOLO, replace it with WALF. Say that with me, WALF. And WALF just stands for we all live forever. So your actions, your decisions, the way that you live now could really impact all of eternity because we all live forever according to Scripture. But where we live and what we do is dependent, again, on Jesus. John 5, 28 through 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. The voice of who? Jesus, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I didn't write that. That's John. That's what God's telling us about the afterlife. That's not an opinion. That's God telling us the way that it is. So our eternity matters and our perspective that the resurrection exists is extremely important enough for Jesus to make this point to the Sadducees. Your perspective become, uh, your perspective becoming eternal is so important because it lifts you from being and having a narrow perspective on this life. I want you to think about this. If the resurrection exists and we live eternally with God, anybody have regret today? Do you have regrets? Do you walk with you and you, you carry it with you and you think about it and it keeps you up at night? Imagine an eternity with Jesus. Are you going to have very good memories of that regret? No. It's going to pale in comparison. That sounds kind of nice, right? Thinking about this idea that there's no regret that can't 
be overturned and overshadowed by eternal glory with God. And that also means for us, if the resurrection exists, there's no more FOMO. I'm pulling out all of these things today. Just bear with me. FOMO means fear of missing out. Okay, fear of missing out. And I know whether you're young or old, have you ever had a fear of missing out on something? Right? Well, it overturns fear of missing out because think about this. Nothing you experience here, no matter how great, will be near the glory of what's to come. Eons. I, I think about this when I think about heaven. I'm going to have eons to learn every single instrument and get really good at it and maybe even invent a few new ones because, man, I am not going to be pressed for time and I'm going to be living in the perfection of what God had intended for all of us. Why would I look back at something that had been so tarnished by sin? Even those grand mountains, when I look at the, out at those, it says all of creation has been touched by sin, yes? They're awesome. There's some beautiful things in this world. Imagine perfection. If I never got to the mountains the rest of my life, I'd be sad. But man, now I have an eternity with perfected mountains as God intended. I missed nothing. Missed nothing. Less worried about things like, if we have an eternal perspective, we become less worried about things like retirement, more focused on things like godliness that produce eternal treasures and goodness. I think about the, the, in Revelation 21.5, it talks about, and in Isaiah 65.17, this concept of, of making all things new. When we're with God in the new heavens and the new earth, there's this idea of perpetual newness. You and I have only ever known aging things. As soon as it's made, it starts to degrade. Can I get an amen? As soon as you drive it off the lot, the price drops. So there's this sense of degradation of what we call entropy. But the idea of all things new is that everything will continually be new all the time. Anybody's mind blown by that? Sounds great. I want to be new every morning. When I wake up and have the soreness, I'm like, man, I can't wait until I get to be new every, every time. God's mercies are new every morning, but my body's not new every morning. And then Paul talks about the new body, 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about this resurrected body, the imperishable. He uses the term imperishable body without degradation or entropy. Can I get an amen, brothers and sisters, that we would have bodies that don't age? By the way, have, do you know that age is still scientifically without explanation? Scientists cannot give us a reason for why we age. Isn't that interesting? Our bodies seemingly are built to regenerate continually and heal themselves. But so there's a breakdown, there's an entropy, and so science still can't explain why we age. Because if they did, you know they'd try to reverse it. It's a mystery that came... At the fall of man, right? When sin entered the world, we began to age because death entered the world, didn't it? That's a reality of Scripture. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Can I get a groan? Oh, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption, the redemption, Romans 8, the redemption of our bodies. That's so good. So the resurrection is confirmed, and that is a big deal. Jesus confirms the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt in this conversation. And then as he rises from the dead, he says, this is sealed for you because I did this. 
So relationship, so secondly, our relationships will be different as he begins to address the question of the Sadducees who are increasingly worried about this idea of lineage. Um, Jesus begins to point out that relationships in eternity are going to be changed. They're going to be different. There was and is a purpose for marriage in this life. Can I get an amen? Oh, that wasn't enough. Where are my married people at? Okay. There's a purpose for marriage. Ephesians 5 says that it's a mystery, but it's like this. It's to display the gospel. It's to show the world what it is to be believers and to follow. The marriage has a purpose to glorify God. By the way, in this passage, it's talking to both men and women because it says those who are married and there's those who will be given in marriage. And so this is not that just women are going to be like angels according to Jesus, but he's saying both men and women, here's what the afterlife looks like. Your relationships and your relationship with each other are going to be changed. Well, marriage has a purpose in this life. Number one, I put sanctification. Marriage is a sanctifier. Can I get an amen to that? Probably not very fervently. Sanctification is this thing that it makes you more and more holy. It means you have to die to yourself to sacrifice for your spouse. Men and women, it goes back and forth, and there's that co-sacrifice for one another. And so it is primarily a, a, a means for sanctification, but also, number two, it's for joy. I can get a whoop-whoop for that. It's for comfort. It's for comfort. It's also for satisfaction. Uh, anybody heard about this book called Song of Solomon? If you're under the age of uh, not married, you shouldn't read the Song of Solomon. But it's, I call it rated M for marriage only. But Song of Solomon is, is the sense that is to give us joy and satisfaction in one another, is to make us one flesh, that there's this uniqueness to marriage in this life. It's also for procli, blah, to produce kids. I'm just going to say that. I, I was going to say, try to, I was going to try to make it, yeah, procreation. But it's so that we can have kids, we can uh, see the next generations rise out of love relationship, committed love relationship. It's for gospel proclamation. But here's where marriage becomes a device or a tool to train us for eternity. Are you ready? It is also a prep for eternity. It's a taste of heavenly things. Marriage is unique in relationship on this earth. There is no other relationship like it on earth that we experience or supposed to experience because it gives you a taste of what it's like to have the oneness in the Trinity. It's the closest relationship we get on this earth to having oneness like the Trinity has. It's not perfect, is it? But when we do it right, there's a oneness that we get to experience on this earth that is the closest to this idea of the oneness that the Trinity has. We are preparing our friends and especially our spouses and attorneys. And if you're not married in here, don't throw a chair at me. But there's still a sense that our relationships in eternity change because our oneness, our relationships become about Christ and eternity and eternal things. And so husbands and wives, you should be training each other up for eternity, but also friends. When you sit at coffee with your friends, are you training one another up for eternity? Our relationships become eternal. Our relationships become important, and so we're talking about Jesus, and we're training each other up. We're making disciples of one another for the purpose of eternity because that investment doesn't just quit at the end of this life, but it continues on. Are you having eternal conversations? Or are you talking about politics? 
Because I can guarantee those are not eternal. <laughs> praise God. I got to praise God out of Ron for that one. Um, so relationships will be different. And so uh, we treat our relationships differently, not just for the purpose of lineage in this life, not just for pleasure in this life, but for heavenly things, for eternal things. And not just marital relationships, but all of our friendships should be treated with this idea that it, we exist eternally together. All relationships will be filled with joy of the Lord, with all peoples in the resurrection. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every difference reconciled and unified by the presence of Christ. Oneness with all. Isn't that amazing? Did you catch that? That's amazing. This was Jesus' prayer for us, by the way. Do you think, here's what I think about John 17. Jesus prays this beautiful prayer for us. This was Jesus' prayer, and I think, man, who would be more likely to have an an answered prayer than Jesus himself praying to God the Father. And here's his prayer. Are you ready? The glory that the one, sorry, the the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. Anybody confused? that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you loved love them, even as you've loved me. And so Jesus is saying, my prayer for all of us here, for all human beings, is to profess faith in Jesus, to become one with the God of the universe in the way that Jesus was one with us and he is one with the Father. That's a lot of oneness. But that was Jesus' prayer request for you and for me. In eternity. So our relationships will be different. By the way, for those of us, uh, some have tried to take this passage and think, well, this is clearly just about women. It's not because he says those who are married and those who are given in marriage. That's a distinction. He's talking about both men and women here. The principle of resurrection, that we will be like angels. (sighs) That should blow your mind a little bit. We'll be the same. And by the way, and contrary, sorry, my Mormon friends, that uh, women are not dependent on their husbands for eternity. Jesus clearly teaches here that women are co-heirs of the resurrection life, not dependent on their husbands for the resurrection. Now, some people, when I share this passage, I remember with my dad, he's like, well, does that mean I'm not married to your mom? What does that mean? That kind of makes me scared. And you'll either have one or two reactions. You'll be like, yes, awesome. Or I'm looking at you. I was looking for the laughing. But Or you're going to be like, man, I really love my spouse. And here's the cool thing. I think the promise here, and this is Shane's, so this is not the word of God, but this is Shane's um, perspective. This is what I think Jesus is trying to teach here. Is he's saying that all of our relationships are going to be as intimate and as good and as loving as what good marriage was supposed to be intended for. Obviously not the the sexual intimacy that is reserved for this life, but there's a sense of oneness that we get to have with all people in the resurrected life. Like how marriage was supposed to be. We would have friendships with all who are of Christ. So our relationships will be different. Um, And then it starts now. It starts now. And Jesus, at the end of this, he's talking just in the interest of time. He says, he goes back to the passage where the burning bush, Moses encounters the burning bush. And 
in the burning bush says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. Here, Jesus is just pointing out the tense. He's saying, I'm not the, the God of dead Abraham, because at this point, by the burning bush, Abraham was long gone on this earth. But he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, meaning that Abraham is still in existence. He is in resurrection, that there is a sense of eternity. And so the tense there is that it starts now. It starts now. Our relationship, our resurrection begins now. And that's where Jesus gives us the promise to live. He is the abundant life, that we can have life and have it abundantly is Jesus's promise. But we can't be unlocked to have the abundant life without abiding in Jesus. So many of us need to start picking up our resurrected life now, living in Christ now, having an eternal perspective now. See, those who have an eternal perspective, they can laugh louder, they can love more, they can do more, they can endure more than anyone else. Why? Because we have a hope of resurrection. We have a hope of life after, and so we don't just live to preserve ourselves here. We live for the eternity of joy in the Lord that we get to have and the defeat of death that one day that we have where we pass through death and into glory. Only through Christ can we live the beginning of our resurrected life, so don't be deceived. So no matter what the weight of your soul is, 21 grams, or if you're a heavy eater, heavy soul eater. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't know about you, but I just can't wait. I just can't wait for my soul to depart and to be resurrected in life with Christ. But as Paul once said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. While we're here, Jesus has a purpose for us to live to Christ, to live to Christ. So what? Live for the hope of the resurrection by preparing for it in your relationships. And then uh, small group questions, how does believing in a bodily resurrection change how I live today? And how can I help others in my life prepare for the resurrection? Um, I want to invite our elders to come up uh, this Sunday. It's first Sunday. Oh, just kidding. Four. Um, so... I got all excited about the resurrection, you guys. I'm just ready to go. Um, I'm going to pray for you. And then uh, I want to encourage you, if you're a member here, if you're a part of the family, please don't run out those doors as quickly as you can when we have this meeting. But be a part of the family. Be a part of the decisions. Pray. Know what's going on in our church. There's a lot going to happen this year. We need you to um, be aware and be a part of those family decisions that we move forward with, okay? Let me pray for us, and I will dismiss you. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray desperately that we would be people who live as if we were resurrected. Would you help us to live to the resurrected life? In Jesus' name, amen.